Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Episode 8 today is about Roger Dean Craig. Roger Dean Craig, at the time of the assassination, worked for the Dallas County Sheriff's Office as a civil warrant officer. Roger received the Man of the Year Award in 1960 for law enforcement for recognition of outstanding performance in the line of duty. At the time of the assassination, he was a well-liked and well-respected member of the Dallas law enforcement community. Roger was in the Dallas County Sheriff's Office the morning of the assassination. Back in 1963, the Sheriff's Office was located at 505 Main Street, inside of City Hall, and it was close to the corner of Main Street and Houston, where the motorcade would make its right turn and enter Dealey Plaza. A couple of hours before the scheduled arrival of the President in Dealey Plaza, Sheriff Bill Decker had gathered the plainclothes officers and detectives from the Sheriff's Department who were on assigned street duty at the time, and he made it clear to all of them that they were not to take part in the security of the President's motorcade. Decker emphasized that the Sheriff's Office personnel were to be merely spectators that day and nothing more. To Roger, that seemed like an unusual statement and an unusual request from Sheriff Decker. One thing that was noticeable to Roger that morning was the crowds that were already gathering and getting larger around the Sheriff's Office. And yet, there was a minimal number of Dallas police officers present in and around that part of Main Street. Now, before we get too suspicious, you have to appreciate that the Sheriff's Office jurisdiction was Dallas County, and they were separate and distinct from the city of Dallas. Dallas also had its own police department. It was not uncommon to occasionally have some form of turf issue, since the city was located inside of the county. Many of the officers on each respective force knew each other. That made it easier most of the time. On this day, as the planning went, the responsibility for security was squarely in the hands of the Dallas Police Department and the Secret Service. At the very least, though, this was a poor executive decision to have the Sheriff's Department stand down regarding the security of the parade route. Little did they know that many of them would be pressed into action, action of a different kind, in a few short minutes after the motorcade made its way up Main Street. That morning in Dallas, as the motorcade traversed the parade route, Roger stepped out onto the street and positioned himself directly outside the front door of the sheriff's office. He waited there for the president to pass by. Soon the president's motorcade was nearby, heading up Main Street on its way to the turn onto Houston. As the crowds began to cheer, the president and his motorcade were now right in front of the sheriff's office. Roger waved to the president, recalling that the president waved back his way. Roger was not particularly political, but he was a registered Democrat, and he genuinely liked the president. The motorcade passed Roger, and a moment or two later made the right onto Houston Street, and in a few more seconds they would be at Elm Street. It wasn't long after that that Roger heard the first shot. In his vernacular, he calls it a report. Immediately, he knew it was a gunshot. He began running as fast as he could down Main Street toward the corner of Houston. Running hard, he was about 15 steps away from Houston, 
on Main when he heard the rapid fire of the second and the third shots. He kept running hard, and he turned the corner, and he headed down Houston toward Elm Street, catching a glimpse of a motorcycle officer running up toward the grassy knoll. By this time, the presidential limousine was already under the triple underpass and had begun the high-speed trip to Parkland Hospital in what was to be a vain attempt to save the president. Roger's first instinct was to catch up with that Dallas police officer that was now headed up toward the picket fence. He figured the officer must have seen or heard something that he was in immediate pursuit of. So Roger made his way quickly through the plaza as he navigated the confusion and fear that spectators were already feeling. He could hear people talking. It was a chaotic scene, and there were rumors flying everywhere. Not only were there rumors that the president had been hit, but there were also rumors that a Secret Service agent had also been shot. Roger kept his focus, and he knew that the first thing he had to do was to get up over that hill and follow the Dallas police officer who was headed to the area behind the picket fence. Roger quickly got himself on the other side of the picket fence and began canvassing the area. Other law enforcement officers were there, too, in that same vicinity. Roger searched the area behind the picket fence for about seven or eight minutes before he ran into a Mr. and Mrs. Arnold Rowland. The Rowlands had been spectators to the motorcade as it was passing through Dealey Plaza. Roger began interviewing Mr. Rowland, who was a young man in his late 20s then, and Mr. Rowland had a startling revelation. He indicated that about 15 minutes before the motorcade arrived, he had seen two individuals on the sixth floor of the school book depository. One was a white male on the southeast end of the building, and Mr. Rowland stated that he had a rifle in his hand. The other individual was a colored male and was located at the southwest end of the building on the same floor. Mr. Rowland stated that this second individual was pacing back and forth. Mr. Rowland had viewed the parade from the top of the grassy knoll, and so he had a good view of the sixth floor from where he was standing. Roger asked Mr. Rowland why he hadn't reported this strange sighting, and Mr. Rowland simply stated that he thought they likely were Secret Service protection for the president. What happens next is quite interesting. After speaking briefly with the Rollins, Roger moved quickly back into Dealey Plaza and immediately noticed something odd. As you might expect, people were streaming into Dealey Plaza to see what was going on. The rumors had spread quickly and people were exhibiting the natural human curiosity that comes with these events. As Roger would say, people are just that way. At that moment, Roger heard a shrill whistle that caught his attention. The sound had come from the other side of Elm Street, the side where he had just come from and where the grassy knoll was located. He turned in time to see a man running down the grass of the knoll. The man was clearly communicating with another man in a vehicle on Elm Street, a vehicle that was driving very slow and approaching the triple underpass. According to Roger, it was a light green Rambler station wagon, and as the Rambler approached the driver, he leaned over toward the right side of the car, apparently communicating with the man who was running down the knoll. This struck Roger as being odd. Everyone else was running to the scene, and these two men appeared to be running away from the scene. Roger immediately tried to cross the street and approach these two men, but the traffic between where he was standing and where the Rambler was located had become severely congested. 
the city traffic officer stationed at the corner of Houston and Elm had left the post in all of this chaos, and the traffic simply backed up. Roger knew he couldn't make it there in time to question them, and he watched the man make his way down the knoll and hop into the Rambler, and a moment later, the Rambler sped away. Roger did get a good look at the man that ran down the hill before he got into the car. Later that day, this would be an important identification element. And it was also an element that didn't jive with the idea that there was no one else involved. By this time, the Dallas Police Department had determined that shots likely came from the sixth floor of the depository, and Roger got word of that, and so he headed to the depository. As he approached the depository building, there was a number of Dallas police officers out front and what appeared also to be a Secret Service agent. Roger asked who was in charge of the investigation and then volunteered to the Secret Service agent the information about what he had just seen and the two men who had just sped away in the Rambler. Roger, in his 1971 interview, would comment that, in retrospect, he wasn't convinced the man in the suit was a Secret Service agent. He recalled that the agent was non-reactive when he described the individual running down the knoll, but the agent did have a noticeable reaction when he mentioned the second man involved as a driver. Later, Roger would look at pictures of all the Secret Service agents and rule out that the man he talked to could be identified by any of those photos. Roger's attention immediately turned to the depository, and he made his way upstairs quickly to the sixth floor, joining other Dallas police officers, including Luke Mooney, who was with Roger. When Roger and Luke reached the sixth floor, they quickly came upon and found three spent shells over in the southeast corner of the sixth floor. Oddly, and in Roger's words, they were lying three in a row, not more than one inch apart, all pointing in the same direction, and they were located close to the window. Roger had fired a bolt-action rifle often when he went hunting and had never had two shells land next to one another. Immediately, that struck him as odd, perhaps impossible. It looked to Roger as if someone had laid them on the floor, but things were moving quick. Close to the shelves was a small brown paper lunch bag with some chicken bones in it and a Coke bottle that was set on top of some boxes. Roger made sure that he didn't touch the shelves or the other evidence. The Identification Bureau would be there soon enough to photograph and collect the evidence. As they declared that they had found the shelves, the next step was to look for a weapon. All the law enforcement officers on the floor fanned out and began to look for a rifle. Deputy Sheriff Eugene Boone and Roger Craig headed for one corner of the building, the northwest corner, and it proved to be the right direction to go looking. Boone was ahead of Roger by about eight feet. There was a stack of boxes just at the head of the stairwell going downstairs. Boone looked over into the stack and suddenly Boone yelled out, Here it is! Here is the rifle! Roger immediately came along beside him and looked over and sure enough, there was a rifle. It was a bolt-action rifle that was lying on the floor. The bolt was facing upward, and it had a scope on it. Both Boone and Craig were sure not to touch it. By that time, Captain Fritz and Lieutenant J.C. Day had arrived onto the sixth floor. Captain Fritz was chief of the Dallas Police Homicide Bureau, and Lieutenant Day was from the Identification Bureau. The Identification Bureau was the group typically charged with the collection and inventorying of evidence. 
They proceeded to take pictures of the rifle in place between the boxes. And next, as Roger recalls it, Day then pulled the rifle out and handed it to Captain Fritz. Fritz then held the rifle up by the strap. At this point, Detective Seymour Weitzman had joined the team. Weitzman had extensive experience with guns, having owned a sporting goods store in the past. Captain Frist continued to hold the gun up and asked the group if they knew what kind of rifle it was. Weitzman stood and stared at the rifle and said it looks like a Mauser. Weitzman and Craig stepped closer so that they could get a better look. Now, Fritz, Weitzman, and Craig were standing almost shoulder to shoulder around the weapon. They were all no more than six or eight inches away from the rifle. And stamped right on the barrel of the rifle was 7.65 Mauser. And that's when Weitzman said, It is a Mauser, pointing right to that marking on the barrel. They noted that the bolt was engaged. They disengaged the bolt, and a live round fell out of the Mauser. Later that day, after Officer Tippett was killed, Roger got the news that the Dallas police had taken a suspect into custody. Roger couldn't stop thinking about the two men who left Dealey Plaza in the Rambler, the Rambler that got away from him. Roger picked up the phone and called Captain Fritz's office. When Fritz answered the phone, Roger described what he had seen and gave a description of the man that he saw get into the Green Rambler. Fritz said, it sounds like the suspect that we have in custody. Come up and take a look at him. So right after the call, Roger got into his unmarked car and he went straight to the Dallas police headquarters. He parked the car and he went straight into Fritz's inner office. Entering Fritz's inner office, there sat a man in a chair behind a desk. There was another gentleman there too, who was unknown to Roger but he was wearing the white cowboy hat that was a trademark at the time of the men working in the Dallas Homicide Bureau. Probably he was one of Fritz's men, Roger thought. Fritz turned to Roger and said, Is this the man you saw? And Roger said, Yes. Fritz then turned to the suspect and said, This man saw you leave. At that point, the suspect got a little excited and then said, I told you people I did. Fritz said, now take it easy, son. We are just trying to figure out what happened. Fritz then asked another question of the suspect. What about the car? Now, for those listening, it's important to note that Fritz at this point had not used the term station wagon. He simply said car. At that moment, the suspect leaned forward and put both hands up on the desk and said, that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this. Then the suspect leaned back in his chair and very disgustedly said, Everybody will know who I am now. The suspect in custody was Lee Harvey Oswald. Roger noted that what Oswald had just said was not a brag. It had been portrayed in the Warren Commission report as a brag. The way Oswald said it, it was not a brag to Roger. As Roger describes it, it was as if this man had just been caught or had just had his cover blown. Whatever it was, it was not a statement made by a man that was happy for the recognition. All right, here is the post log. In a few of the earlier episodes, I gave a bit of a preamble before we got started. This one is exactly the opposite. For episode eight, I decided to wait till we were done with the episode before I made a statement about what you just heard. 
rather than talking about what you were going to hear. I wanted you to listen closely to Roger Craig's story before you heard what I'm going to tell you now. Roger Craig as a witness is not without controversy. That's a shame. Roger died in 1975 of a gunshot wound from a rifle. It was categorized as a suicide. According to Roger, his life was threatened on a number of occasions and he gave witness to what happened in great detail. Some of the incidents are really horrific. I'm going to leave the discussion of all of that for another episode that is completely dedicated to some of the more mysterious happenings and threats that were received by witnesses in this case. Sadly, serious researchers of the JFK assassination have Roger in various camps. Penn Jones, the leathery and lovable Texan from Midlothian who wrote the book about the assassination entitled Forgive My Grief, was a staunch supporter of Roger's. Others, such as Mary Farrell, have had some more negative comments about Roger attributed to them. One thing is for sure, he is another victim of this tragedy in the post-mortem assassination period. A victim in a number of ways, really. As you just listened, I am sure you will agree that Roger Craig's statements were both shocking and electrifying. By themselves, if true, virtually confirm a conspiracy. I've watched many hours of taped interviews of Roger Craig, and I found him very earnest and honest. And it's hard not to be endeared to his clean-cut and gentle personality with a seemingly powerful attention to details and analytical capacity that you would attribute to a highly reputable officer of the law. Still, others in the assassination research business will tell you that there are plenty of clean-cut people that will look you straight in the eye and lie straight away. Prosecutors will tell you that too. So what is really going on here? Is it the truth and only the truth from Roger Craig? Is it the truth embellished? Is it fiction? Like I said in episode 7, if you yourself were the jury, how would you conclude? Well, after the assassination, as the Warren Commission controversy began to heat up, many people came to Dallas to talk to Roger. His explosive statements are well-known, and they've been highlighted by people like Mark Lane, a major conspiracy theorist from the 60s, who is also very controversial himself. Perhaps, first, I think Roger acted just out of the courage that I think this man had to tell the truth. And then later, perhaps, either out of desire or real necessity, he sought some of the attention and opportunity that came to so many of the witnesses that were willing to step into the limelight. He began to speak to researchers and others who are conspiracy theory advocates. None of these discussions were likely to have a positive outcome for the local law enforcement authorities, and they were not well received locally. Once Sheriff Decker got wind that folks were coming to Dallas to have these conversations with Roger, and Roger was allowing them to take place, Decker approached Roger about it. Decker was adamant that he stay away and not participate in these communications. Bluntly, he told Roger, and Roger quotes, You tell those people you didn't see anything, and you didn't hear anything. That is telling, and it's also chilling. It was not long after that that the Sheriff's Department let Roger Craig go, the gentleman who was Man of the Year in 1960. After that, he struggled to find work, and whether there was an organized effort to shut him out of the law enforcement community, it's not clear. But one thing is clear. 
Whatever happened next, surely the economic hardship made it easier to play into the hands of this new industry that had popped up around conspiracy theories related to the assassination. Whether he ever succumbed to that, we will not know. A few years later, he got the attention of Jim Garrison, who, as you know, famously conducted the failed trial in New Orleans around the JFK assassination. Roger did some investigative work in Dallas to support Garrison's work, but that association didn't help his reputation. Clearly, as I tell you that story in a later episode, Roger felt that it may even have contributed to at least one of the attempts on his life. Perhaps one of the most outrageous and shocking things that you just heard from him was that the gun they found on the sixth floor was a Mauser. It wasn't an Italian Mannlicher Carcano rifle. It wasn't the gun that was owned by Oswald and delivered through mail order that was served up by the Warren Commission. You always have to wonder if someone is exaggerating or not. The affidavit submitted that night by Seymour Weitzman clearly details that the gun they found was a 7.65 Mauser. It was widely reported on television that day and also on the radio and in the newspapers that the gun they found was, in fact, a Mauser. Why then, later that night, did it all of a sudden become the Italian Manlicker Carcano? The Warren Commission testimony by Seymour Weitzman on how this confusion took place is not very convincing. And frankly, the Warren Commission attorneys were not probative on the topic. Probably, based just on the embarrassment value alone, they spent little time on it. But you and I know that this was an experienced detective with ostensibly a highly qualified background to identify rifles, and he had just been called into a homicide case that involved the president. That man, that kind of man, doesn't casually get the identification of the rifle wrong, then sign an affidavit, and then later reverse the affidavit, just realizing that he made a slight mistake. The information regarding the Mauser is widely circulated because there is an affidavit to it. To me, it really does seem that this part of the story must be true. But if it is true, it must be shocking. And it opens up a Pandora's box of questions that have never really been well-researched and certainly not answered. That may very well have been why Roger met the stiff resistance after the assassination, and more importantly, why he endured the ultimate tragedy that befell him. More on this topic to come in later episodes. Thank you for listening to Episode 8 of JFK. The Enduring Secret.